Welcome to the Beyond Listening podcast. Here again with Adam and I'm Miriam from We Are Open Circle. And it is with tremendous gratitude and humility that I welcome today's guest. Um, She and the movement that she started has had a massive impact on me and my life. Um, I feel emotional as I say that. Um, Meredith, Mm. thank you so much. Um, Meredith, with her partner Stephen, started the School of Lost Borders. Gosh, I want to say 40 years ago, but it might be that might be an, that might be a slight exaggeration. Um, written several books, um, spurred and inspired people from around the globe um, in so many different ways um, with uh, your um, and Stephen's work on rite of passage, um, bringing meaning and soul back into people's lives and work. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your generosity in joining us today. Um, And I want to acknowledge that the three of us um, share a tradition of circle. And um, in the tradition of circle, Mm -hmm. um, we we start with a moment um, of of dedication, um, of dedicating um, our time and our conversation together in a way that acknowledges everything that is holding us and that has led us to this point. So uh, we don't usually begin this way, but acknowledging the shared tradition we share, I wanted to just leave a moment today for any of us to share a dedication for our time and our conversation here today and any anyone we want to bring in or acknowledge as we enter into it. Well, I want to thank you, the two of you for inviting me to um, be a part of what you're creating and if, of course, if I would dedicate it to anyone, it would be to Stephen, who this would not be what it is without him. And to the land. Yeah. And to my grandchildren. May it be good for the children. In Australia, where I am sitting today, um, we have learnt to a tradition um, which I want to honour, which is just honouring the traditional custodians and carers of this land um, that I am sitting on. Um, And um, I want to also acknowledge... um, the violence on all levels um, that me and my ancestors have been part of um, in terms of taking the land and the culture and the valuable knowledge that we missed out on in desiccating that in Australia Um, and just want to bring back the care and the honour of all those who have cared for this land and have that knowledge of just bringing that in as a dedication to our session today. Beautiful, Miriam. And my land is uh, the Paihunadu of the Paiutes and the Shoshone people who um, 
caretook this land for a very long time and in many ways still are. Thank you both. I'll, I'll add my dedication, um, which came to me as I was sitting here and, and meeting you, Meredith, or seeing you for the first time, um, having exchanged emails and read, read books. And so meeting you I here, I, um, I had an immediate experience or feeling of all the threads that connect us. Um, having gone through a rite of passage program when I was 18 or 17 um, and probably was deeply influenced. That program was probably deeply influenced by the work that you were doing at that time. And prior to that, it was at the Ojai Foundation mm -hmm. um, and the council work and the vision quest work and how even when, even when I didn't know it and I wasn't reading a book from the, or working with the School of Lost Borders, that the work that that you all have done um, has influenced my life deeply mm -hmm. um, and probably many others in ways that we don't even know about um, so the thank you for recognizing both of you the stewards remembering help me helping me remember the stewardship um, and the people that were here before us and i was feeling that immediately um, as we came into this space together mm. the, the very tangible and and kind of untrackable threads that that connect us here um, now in this world so thank you adam yeah may we continue to be connected and and return this honoring the land because it's so important and to bring back some of the wisdom that has come from the land and to um to help we little humans somehow find more balance in our life. As a prompt for the first question, I, I want to read this poem that we sometimes read that you will know, Meredith, I'm sure very well. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, mm. but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. Mm, yeah, beautiful. William Stafford. I love that poem, yeah. <laughs> That's a prompt for our yeah. first question is, you know, there's a thread um, and, and just thinking about the thread of your life or the threads of your life and work, um, wanting to track them back to your early days, your childhood um, and any stories you have of the, the kind of what you perceive as the kind of beginnings of the threads that you've been following throughout your life. It's a big question. Um, well, I grew up in the country, and the for me, um, the land was where I spent most of my time, and I was fortunate enough to live to to be raised at a time when my mother, who had five kids, could give us complete freedom, and not to have to worry about danger and someone 
coming to do something that was um, kidnapping or all the many dangers in the world today. So I had I had complete freedom to go out, and I was out most of the days. And I think you know some of my very first. I, and I my feeling is that every child, if allowed to be on the land, has experiences of. I think as adults, we call it um, enlightenment, although I think that's much too big a word for something that is just as children feels natural. That that um, lying, for me, it was lying in the field of, of clover, looking up at the clouds that were going by and feeling, um, really getting that I was connected to everything and that everything was connected to each other. And it wasn't some big aha, it was just a knowing. And I think because young, uh, young people and children are not allowed to walk on the land and be in relationship with the land, that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot that never gets evoked in our humanness. Um, that can only be evoked by walking on the land and sleeping on the land and building a fire on the land and all of the many things that we do to be connected. Um, so it's, there's a sadness in me that we have to, um, you know, that, that it's so important that we, in whatever ways we can, bring that back to our young people. Um, and so that's proud that that is the beginning of what for me was the essential part of who I was was in relationship to the land. When I got into I went to um, started going to college in '69 when the big rioting was happening and the world was being shaken up by new paradigms and new ideas, and um, I know that. It was a time of change, and a lot of what came for me was um, you don't just talk about it, that you that without action, it means nothing, and finding in a lot of ways that university was all talk, and I hungered to, keep, to find ways of being able to not just learn about psychology and sociology and mythology and philosophy, um, but to find a way where you could bring all that together in somehow in some action that made a difference in the world. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was the times when a lot of things began to emerge. And one of them was um, I met Stephen at uh, suicide prevention, and we began to listen to people on the phone who were feeling so uh, desperate and had no one there to be with them and walk with them. And I, during that those long nights of answering phones, hearing Stephen talk about the beginning of experimenting with taking young people out on the land through, he worked at a youth agency federally funded youth agency that allowed him to take a group of kids out into the desert and they would all um, 
separate, they'd bury the food and uh, come back together again three days later. And Stephen, you know, he, as an English professor, he had, one of the things he'd been fascinated by was in poetry and mythology and fairy tales, this th thread of um, initiation, the importance of initiation, especially for young people passing into adulthood. Again and again, you see this in um, mythology and uh, fairy tales. And for him, the big one was the Odyssey, which is clearly a rite of passage story. So to try to bring that back, something that was a meaningful way for young people to actually mark passing into their adulthood and letting go of childhood, there he saw nothing that had that meaningful content. And so I'd hear these stories of he'd take you know, we'd go out for coffee when he came back from the desert and he just cried because the the what was happening to the young people, he had no idea what was happening, except that something big happened to them when they spent that kind of time on the land. So I, in him and his stories, I heard um, finally a place that was um, able to take all that wholeness of the themes of psychology, sociology, philosophy, mythology, and actually embody it to use that wisdom um, in uh, working with young people, trying to bring back a very, very old, ancient wisdom that you can find around the world and to try to bring it back to our young people because they were, young people were hurting and people weren't listening to them. You know, one of my favorite books and threads in your life that I learned not just through you, but through um, Betsy and Sylvia guides with the School of Lost Borders mm -hmm. is about love. And it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite books, the, the book you wrote about love and Stephen. And, and, um, um, and I wonder about you. that thread because I hear that in the unlearning, in the, in the land, and, and coming back to, you know, it not being this great aha moment, but the simplicity of, um, of the unlearning and just that deep knowing that's there, that you described was there for you and, and I think in your experience with everyone. I'm wondering where love, where, where that thread of love fits in, which is so strong in, in, I've, as I've experienced in your work. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, a lot of people ask, um, how did the school uh, begin? You know, what was it? And how did I get involved in it? And, you know, I, I have to go back to, I fell in love. You know, it really was out of the love between Stephen and I that felt, we felt we would look at each other and say, together we can do anything that our love is big enough that it can go out to more than us. And um, the dream that we realized that was the biggest dream was, again, to bring this uh, rites of passage support to young people and to 
those adults that were hurting and to try to bring back um, bring back the wisdom of the land to return it around the world as bold as that might sound um, so it it was it began from love and even as we through the years of doing this work um, and in the beginning it was hard we had no money we had a newborn child we had some you know two young stepsons um, we didn't really know what we were doing what we had was we loved those young people and we'd when they were out on fast we'd say this is too much it's too hard you know we can't keep doing this and then they'd come back across the threshold and we'd look in their eyes and it's like how can we not do this something is happening and so it you know it was never about um let's make a lot of money or let's become some famous person people let's do something that that people will admire it was really out of caring about these young people who once you stop and you listen to them and you listen to their stories you can't help but realize how much they have that we need to hear and how much we are not listening to them and tell them you know when you grow up then your story will be important but you're young you don't understand and we skip over really listening to them and they have a lot of wisdom and it's it's amazing to me how you know i always felt like um just having them sleep on the ground just having simple ways for them to be on the land how not only for young people although it's even closer for young people but adults too you just scratch the surface give them a little bit of um, opportunity to really bond with the land and it opens up areas of our humanness that can be done no other way uh, how how close to the surface how little it takes and you know love it's like you know, i think all of us have had enough pain in our life yeah and we know we care enough that in the end really what it gets to, all that you I mean you hear this again and again but all that really matters is is loving is to love to care to be full enough to be able to um, open up and really listen and care about each other. So uh, love, you know, sitting in circle, hearing each other's stories. It became, you know, from our research into indigenous people around the world, it was clear that when someone came off the mountain and after being doing a ceremony, often four days and nights without food, often without water, that they would come back to the village and the elders would say, would invite them to come into a council of elders. Often they're different. Sometimes the elder was defined as all men, sometimes as mixed men and women, sometimes as the older people. Well, how they defined elder was different around the world, but they would invite that person to come 
and sit in circle and tell their story. And they listened to it, not looking for what was wrong with this person or how do we fix this person? Um, how do we, what do they need? What have they done that shows a weakness in them? But they really listened for who this person was and what their yearning was, what their dreams were, what were, their, what were the gifts that were shown in the story? And what was it that spirit had, had come and brought to them during that time? And they really listened because they knew that the, the um, wisdom that came through during that time was not only for the person who had just been out in ceremony, it was wisdom for the whole village. So there was a listening that was non-judgmental, and that was how can we now bring them back into our community and support them to grow into their gifts, apprenticeships, whatever needed to be done, because they were seen as essential to the health and the balance of the community. And they knew that if they didn't listen to the young people, the stories of the young people, if they didn't listen to the stories of the elders, if they didn't listen to all the stories, that they would they were they did not have the information they needed to keep balance and wholeness and health in their community. Um, so again, that's not listening without judgment. That is love. I mean, if I keep bringing it back to the word you brought, um, that's caring, and it makes a difference. It's everything. It's what the land teaches us. You know, you go out and it's storming and it's cold and it's raining and it does all that on all of us, no matter what color or religion or, you know, the land and is nature is there for us. Um, whenever we come out, it doesn't mean it's always benevolent or, you know, it's, it's not malicious. It's so many things like we are as human beings, but it's there for everyone and anyone who comes and asks. And that's, that's pretty different than we find in our relatively dysfunctional civilized world. And so the clues that when we send people out on the land, even for an hour or two with, you know, mark the gateways, step across with an intent, that the uh, with the the clues about how to be um, the clues about how to be as a human being are healthy clues. Every one of them, the way nature shows itself, uh, what to how that how it communicates with each other, how it finds healing after a fire, all the ways, all the clues about being that nature teaches us is also wisdom for human nature. And yet, if we are in the city all the time, the clues that we learn from watching the interaction of the city is often very dysfunctional. I love that. I, I love that definition of love. Um, you know, it is there for anyone who, who, who comes to ask. It's, yeah. Beautiful. Thank you.
Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things you started to mention your research, and um, I remember coming in and hearing some of the some of the stories about your research and thinking about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and thinking about how this was really kind of mm-hmm. the next stage, um, you know, of, of actually um, the next stage of that work in another way. And I, I wondered if you could just tell us a few stories about your research and, um, and, and, and how that came about. Um, I, a lot, one of uh, the important teachers for us was my, was Virginia High and Ginny, my stepmother, godmother, who was a uh, cultural anthropologist. And when my father died, which was um, just as Stephen and I were becoming committed to each other, um, Jenny, after he died, began to live with us half the year. And because she loved uh, what we were doing. And together, she brought in an element that was really important. Um, I mean, we already had been exploring how fairy tales and poetry and so many of the um, the old literature was about ceremony and rites of passage. But she brought in, she introduced us to Arnold Van Gennep, a very important person in anthropologist in the early first years of ni- the 1900s who first coined the term rites de passage, rites of passage. And a lot of her, uh, Ginny's work was to study cultures around the world and to visit cultures that still had the element of indigenous to them. And again and again, there was that thread of the importance of the community uh, together uh, holding um, containers for uh, meaning for the important life moments of a human life, that the whole community was responsible for helping to hold, guide, witness, and bring to closure these important moments of a life from childhood to adulthood, or even earlier than that, the birth of a child, all the way through to, of course, adult to elder and elder to death, that these were opportunities, not just opportunities, but they were, it was essential to, to provide a context for these moments to happen. Otherwise, the, the energy of that time leaks out in destructive ways, like was happens in our, for our youth without a way, without the elders or the community helping to hold and guide them through what's one of the most important transitions of life. Um, they, we begin to see gangs and young people overdosing and killing themselves and each other. So in, in Ginny would keep, you know, late at night, we'd bring, we'd talk about the various pan-cultural elements of a rite of passage and began to hone it down to um, what are those uh, pieces of a rite of passage that seem to be common around the world? What's a pan-cultural bare bones of a rite of passage? Because we also recognize that it, that a rite of passage had to be relevant, had to contain 
um, guidance and wisdom that enabled the person, say, passing from childhood to, to adulthood, that helped prepare them for the truth of the world they went back to. And in our world, we felt like um, one of the important elements that needed to be brought back was a sense of, um, of having, not giving our power away, you know, to a guru, to a priest, to a um, someone who claimed to know the truth, that it was important for young people to um, to bring into the bare bones of the ceremony that which is meaningful to them, the symbols, the actions, the spiritual tradition, that uh, to bring that into those three days and nights for youth, those three days and nights. Um, and when we began to do that, it was we were blown away by, we never could have come up with as important and meaningful things to suggest to them to do as they found themselves by bringing in their own uh, wisdom and relevance, their own symbols and actions. And so we began to, more and more, we began to step back and to um, keep the, the, that bare bones, that framework as simple as possible so that they could fill it with uh, things that were uh, the story contained wisdom for all of us, and that also is true with adults. We would have uh, Buddhist ministers, Buddhist Zen monks, um, Jewish priests, uh, people, Mormons, people of all different spiritual traditions who would bring their own symbols and actions into the ceremony and come back with stories that really blew us away. We couldn't we learned so much. Um, so we also, one of our other late night talks was about um, ceremony itself. And Ginny began to research what are the bare bones of ceremony um, that, you know, what are the questions to ask in order to create a ceremony that will meaningfully contain what it is that we're marking or want to call in. And again, to see how um, natural it was for us um, to be able to understand how to create meaning without somebody else telling us how to do it, what's the right way to do it. And in the same way, we, we tried to see if there were other elements that we could put into uh, the vision fast when we took people out. And often for indigenous people, it was, um, they would stay in one place for the whole time and or no water during that time. Often it was in one place, no food or water. And we asked ourselves, is that still relevant to do it that way? And recognizing that the, one of the things missing from a human modern humans was to have a relationship with the land. And so we felt that it was really important, even though it made it more risky, to allow the fasters to roam, to have a base camp, their own little spot, not too far from base camp, but then during the day to be able to, to walk, to explore. And 
um, that to again bringing an element that felt like it was relevant to what they went back to 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 try to heal that split between human and nature, which is so insidious and creates such imbalance in our human lives, and to find ways as best we could to help them bond with the land, which live alone on the land for three days and nights. And that's the one thing you know is going to happen, is that they're going to bond with the land in ways that they don't understand. And it's going to change the way they vote, the way they live, the way they understand their relationship with each other in the world. So there's always the question in creating meaningful rites of passage is what is it that is needed by our people in our culture, in our part of the world, that, that modern people need evoked and strengthened in order to deal with the truth of a very difficult world that we live in right now and a world where people really get overwhelmed and lost. Uh, how do we bring a container back for them that will help them to integrate all the changes that are happening in our world today, to integrate it in a way that helps them um, grow and mature with these changes rather than becoming overwhelming, overwhelmed and often uh, using addiction and uh, suicide to say to, because they don't have the container to integrate the truths of a world that we live in today. I'm not sure that I have a fully formed question yet, but um, as you've taken us into the territory of culture, pan-cultural, the, the bare bones, kind of human um, elements, um, and that permission giving, although I don't know if you're giving permission, that's part of my question. Are you giving permission or are you empowering others or how are you doing this um, to get people to really embrace their own cultural story, their own personal story, like to put their own skin on those bones? Um, how are you, how do you do that? I guess is a, is part of the question, mm. uh, when people come to you or come to the school, um, for answers, they're seeking something often I, I know I was, um, how do you do it? And also how do you, how do you navigate? How have you navigated, um, things, the questions of cultural appropriation and, um, you know, bringing things which we may not have grown up with in our culture um, back into our culture in a way that's authentic. And I think you're, you're touching on that, but I'd love if you could just share a little bit of your story and journey with that, um, any of those pieces. That's a lot. Yeah. Hmm. Which one? Well, I think the first part, how do we um, encourage them to bring their own I think what you're saying is their own symbols that bring their own meaning into the bare bones. And I guess my answer is, you know, we talk about what some of the, the um, common elements of the ceremony are around the world, like uh, 
um, fasting. What we we would talk to them about some of the common elements of this of a rite of, of rite of passage, and in say you can you know use these or don't use these as is meaningful for you, including bringing in their own symbols that are meaningful to them, creating their own small ceremonies within the context of the rite of passage, to formally mark while they're out there the severance um, cutting the ties from mother and father and we talked about ways that they can literally do that by bringing cutting a rope or throwing a rock a boulder how to create a meaningful ceremony that marks the specifics of what they are out there to do um and they you know it's again it's right under the surface we don't have to say much except that this is about tapping the wisdom of the land. The, the land is, you know, it was understood by indigenous people around the world that the source of all wisdom was the land and that they can literally communicate with the land. Um, and we would, t- we would have talk about some of the ways of being able to to talk to the plants, to talk to the clouds, to talk to whatever they uh, are attracted to when they're out there. And again, it sounds like, you know, a big thing, but it's it's so natural for us to do it. And I think that surprised us a lot. Um, so you ask about cultural appropriation and that, of course, from back in the early 70s, when we began to do this, um, there was the AIM movement in our country. And um, we were had Native American people who would challenge us. And what we would say was... That's the American Indian. American Indian movement. Thank you. Um, what we would say is that that we, which we did, we fasted on the land every year to ask, is this something that we, it's okay for us to do? We would pray for the people that might come. And we, that we asked the land itself if it was ours to do, if it was all right for us to bring this ceremony to our people. And that we did not use Native American language, that this was, we, you know, this was a that our ancestors also had these ceremonies, and that that rather than copying a Native American or an Aboriginal way of doing it, to try to bring again our own symbols, our own spiritual traditions to the land, and that that was something that all people um, had the right to do. Uh, it was a it was part of our humanity was to be able to live um, in relationship to the wisdom of the land and to to mark these moments. And um, you know, I must we had I must say that I am still a little surprised that over all these forty plus years that when we speak of it in this way with the native people that they understand and that as long as we don't steal their ceremonies or use their symbols or 
um, which I deeply respect that they have the right to their own culture. We have to find our own culture too. And, and so in one of my passions now is, again, to keep bringing it back to the land around the world so that it, Aborigine people, Aboriginal people can, again, reclaim what is theirs on that land and to ask, how do I create a ceremony for my people that acknowledges and uses my tradition and my culture? Um, and not to, you know, I have no interest in coming and telling other cultures how to do it. But I do have an interest in reawakening our awareness of how much we've lost that connection around the world. There's still some that have it. And, you know, they are places to go with. Oh, we have a lot to learn. Um, and we have to find our own relationship again, uh, because it, it's, it's not gone. You know, all spiritual traditions originate from the earth. They came out of their earth-based wisdoms and all of them came from the land. And so we can never lose it we, because it, it's, it's still in the land. And if we go and ask and sit and, um, and create relationship and bond with the land in that way, then it awakens in us what is our, our, our nature's um, inheritance. It's a big, you're asking a big question, and I know I'm only, we, we're only talking about it a little bit, but it's a big one. And when when we moved to Big Pine, to this town, uh, one of the first things he, we did was to find out who the elder was and to who happened to live, the elder of the um, Paiutes who lived in a large territory around us lived in Big Pine. And so we went to him and brought him a present and asked for permission to use his land. And it feels important to continue to do that wherever and whenever and however we can to acknowledge they still are in many ways, they still are the caretakers of this land. They, they hold that voice. They've, and they speak despite the fact that it's being, um, not listened to and, uh, you know, a lot of terrible things that are happening. And, um, they continue to hold the voice of that sanity, of our, the importance of caring for the land and keep doing whatever we can, all the, whatever sacrifice we need to do in order to help maintain a healthy land. And they have that, they hold that voice and we need to listen to it. I'm thinking of, of you know, how does how did this how does this work this 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 going this rite of passage work? How did it apply for you? This simplicity, this unlearning, when you came back into what was and followed this own journey of of your own work growing and 
when human organization had to did come around it and what was your relationship to that what were the pains and the joys and the, and the you know you know my I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that whole story would be we'd be here for weeks and just kind of anything that's occurring to you now that seems mm-hmm. saving to tell you the truth i'm really grateful for the people who are uh, committed and involved at the school right now because to tell you the truth I don't think Stephen and I could do it I want to uh, you know for me it's keeping small and intimate and again I'm proud of the school because there's still every guide I am so proud of the work that they do and they keep the intimacy and the non-judgment and they do you know they're really good guides the school itself is an organization it's going through changes and it's, I think in our modern world that probably going through changes again and again, more and more quickly is probably the nature of it. Uh, And how to have that not intrude and interfere with the really fine work um, that the guides are doing is, can be a challenge. Um, so finding new forms of organization is something that um, feel new paradigms of organization. Um, some of the organizations that I have that I know about are doing some very innovative ways of trying to maintain the intimacy and the the authenticity of their work with the demands of a changing civilization. You know, the question that I heard you ask and, and you answer, uh, Meredith, was how to, how to turn something which w- was created from a spark of love, how to keep that love going in, in systems that seem to be designed to thwart that creativity yep. and to, to stand in the middle of those two things and not, and this is obviously a certain level of projection, having, you know, being in the same world as you, how to not... Um, how to not let those systems put out that fire and at the same time respecting those systems for what they they offer us, which is some can be some level of protection or continuity and how to hold that balance. So mm-hmm. it's a good it's way a, to put it. It's a yeah. question that so many of the people that we work with and we are asking as well um, in this world and, and particularly in, t- in these times of change that you named that, you know, the, the, the demands on that are continually changing as well. So, Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Uh, and how, to, how it doesn't, you know, there are the, the passion that I see in guides of, you know, recognizing that the world is in need and that what uh, these old ways offer is a way of helping humans to adapt, not adapt, to grow from chaos, um, to have that passion and also to be, you know, very independent people who uh, feel strongly about things. And how do we keep not, as you say, not thwart that, not dampen that, but somehow also um, create a container that will allow the passion its full realm, its full expression, while also a container that will keep us legal and 
the, and enable us to reach as many people as possible. You know, how to do it? It's not, it's not, it's hard. Yeah. I imagine having tracked, um, tracked the, the kind of the birthing and the evolution of this work. Um, I imagine there being a number of rite of passages in it. Um, is there one that stands out in this moment that you could tell us a story of, a rite of passage of your work? Well, it has to be when Stephen died. Um, the uh, year, two years before he died, when we knew that you know he was getting more and more sicker and sicker, um, it got to the point where we could no longer uh, run the school, which was beginning to get bigger. We were inviting a few new guides. Um, and also do some of the work, the training work that we wanted to do. And we didn't even know how much longer it would be before Stephen died. And so we gave the school away. So that clearly for me and the school was a very big shift. Um, and we gave it away to, we told, we had five uh, core staff. We said, it's yours if you want it. Um, decide how to run it. You know, it's all up to you. You guys go and meet in council for the next year. And in one year, either you take it on in whatever form you want it to be, or we're going to dismantle it. And so um, they got together for a year and talked amongst themselves and created uh, a form that wasn't so dissimilar. So Joseph and, and um, Emerald began to became the head of the school and it was a it was a number of years of transition before finding really what the new form is what the new feet were and um the and a growing decision to get bigger and to grow and so that more could reach more people and there began to be a lot more guides who got involved um and of course that's from a little mom and pop shop um to a growing organization with a growing number of guides and um, trying to find the right, you know, I think uh, after Emerald and Joseph, then Joseph began to run it and he decided that it needed to be a nonprofit, which at the time was, you know, I think it probably was absolutely appropriate despite the new challenges that that brings. So it began to find its own and it took five, six years, I think, before it began to have its own voice again. They were using, you know, the old voice. Um, and it needed, in order to really keep it alive, it needed to find its own new voice. And that took a while. What have you observed? Like, I mean, I know that Adam's already asked this question, so I'm asking it again in another way. But if, what have you observed of the individuals of, like, what is when what is that kind of like as they and I'm thinking now more of the personal story actually of of what is it to unearth your own voice your own culture what have you seen what it, yeah what's your experience of that in in observing so many people um, do that one of the things that I'm seeing now at the school in terms of it finding now it's finding another voice um, 
is that I know that I cannot take the school further, that my that I, I am always supportive of the school, but I need to step back because I'm 70 years old and I'm part of the old voice. And this is a really big time when our culture is going through some major changes, yeah? Social justice, you know, oh, so many things. Climate change, so much is happening. And it's time for the younger generations to make decisions about how the school should run. Um, and they're very passionate about having it be relevant to what is true in the world today. Like we talked about that it has to be relevant to what the what's happening in the world and what our people need to get through the truths of what's happening. And I, I'm 70. I, I love to hear the stories about uh, this coming out of these generations and I'm learning a lot um, and I can't be the one to make the decisions. They have to do that. They have to find their own form and their own voice in running this organization. And that's both, you know, I think couple years ago when it was beginning to shift, I wondered if um, the school was, you know, time for it to die, which is fine. Um, or if it actually would be able to survive this big upheaval and changes that were happening in the world. And I'm happy to say it's, I think it's beginning to find its new voice and form. And uh, I think in any viable a live organization, it goes through deaths and rebirths quite often, as opposed to corporate uh, organizations that try to be not change and stay exactly the way they are and keep stable. That it's not like that. These new organizations, they, they change a lot. They need to change a lot. They need to die to what's no longer working and find the new voice over and over again in order to be um, authentic to what our people need. Yeah. I, I have a question which I think it, it, to me, it's a question which is going to start to close us out. And, mm -hmm. and every word and everything that you've said has been like, a really good meal, maybe a really good meal after fasting <laughs> for a while. Um, so I don't, so I'm sort of hesitating to ask it. Um, but it's, and maybe it's not the last, maybe it's not the closing, a closing question, but it's about the desert. Hmm. When I, when I did my fast with you all, I was like, why do we have to go to the desert? Can't I, I, I'm an ocean and river person. Can't we go somewhere where there's water? And I even wrote to the guy, like, can you put me close to some water? And he's yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't know anything. Um, of course, he said, no, there's no water, but you can bring some and you can have a water ceremony. Um, so what, as, as a place that you, you and Stephen gravitated towards for rites of passage and then you live in a place which is now a high desert. I don't know if it, mm -hmm. I know that landscape has changed quite a bit, the Owens River Valley. Um, what is it about the desert? I feel like there's a love story there with the desert. And I'd love to hear more 
about that, yeah. the why and the what and the how you how you romance that that particular ecosystem, what it means for you. Um, well, from a very personal way, I grew up in Minnesota, which is not desert, and uh, I moved out. My family moved out when I was fifteen, sixteen, and. Um, Stephen grew up in California, and his father was a gold miner, and uh, they spent a lot of time in the desert. Um, it was a place where Stephen grew up in many ways. He talks about the importance of his time when his family went uh, was out by the gold mine or in you know the desert. That how much it influenced who he was. So he's the one who introduced me to the desert. And uh, I fell in love with it right away. I don't know, you know, why do we re uh, resonate with certain ecosystems? I really don't understand. I think for me, it's, um, I am a real introvert and I, and simplicity is like, it's part of who I am. And in the desert, my eyes can stretch out forever, it feels like. And it's that big, dist it's that big wide horizon that I just love. But you take it to this ceremony, and it's interesting that um, many of the, the uh, spiritual leaders who we read about who went on um, a vision fast, basically. Jesus, Muhammad, Moses, you know, a lot of, um, they went to the desert. And it's become clear to me that one of the reasons why the desert is such a good place for this ceremony is that it strips us to the bone. It takes everything away. You know, the, the desert is, it, you see the bones of the desert, the rocks. There's nothing, very little that's covering it. And you begin to, to, to appreciate and, you know, you take people out um, on, who have never been in the desert and they say, oh my, like you, oh my God, there's no way I can live out here. There's nothing here, absolutely nothing. At the end of four days and nights, I bet you could tell me a whole lot more about the beauty of the desert. It's the little things that you begin to appreciate and to see around you. And the silence, there is no silence like the desert. And there's a way that it strips us bare and then begins to fill us with something else. Um, and so I understand why the old prophets used to go into the desert. And I feel pretty strongly that not, you know, I'm, uh, I, I feel strongly that the desert is one of the best places to go if you really want to get down to essence and be stripped of all our, um, what is not important. It takes us to essence. And that's a good thing. I, I'm going to finish this, that story about the water too, to kind of prove your point here, um, which is that my experience, one of the pivotal experiences of, of that fast was sitting uh, in Eureka Valley and watching 
to the I, I sat and watched the mountains to the point where I could see them flowing. Mm. And I could see the how the water had shaped them or how how wind had shaped them. And I it was it it took me beyond my my experience of time um, into the essential flow, I guess, of of the earth. And um, so I found my water in a way, and I no one could have told me that. You know, I couldn't have read that in a book, and no guy could have said, "No, there's actually flow here." Right? I found it. So Hmm. one of those little lessons that you were those clues that you were talking about earlier that we have to find for ourselves in places and experiences with the land um, that you all offer. So, Prior to it happening, it's hard to be grateful for what is going to strip us bare. <laughs> oh, that's the truth. It's not, it's not all comfortable <laughs> no. at all, is it? And again, it's the teaching that life is not, it's not about, doing something to be happy all the time it's about learning how to go with the the waves you know get out on the land um and that itself can be healing you know they they're certainly finding that with children let them spend a half an hour in the land and they're they're more balanced and healthier um we have to we have to bring together that split between nature and human um, it's for our survival we have to do that. Yeah. May it be so. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. We began mm-hmm. with dedications, we end with blessings. Began with children, end with children. Um, yeah, and the land. Yeah. Thank you both. Yeah. Thank you so Good much, questions. Meredith. Yeah.